This episode of Trapital is brought to you by Dice. Listen, buying concert tickets can feel like a project for your fans. They have to navigate through bots, resellers, and high fees. Fans may not know their favorite artists came to town until after. Buying concert tickets should be easy, even for shows in Vegas. That's where Dice comes in. It's a discovery platform for great shows. Syncing with Spotify or Apple Music allows fans to get recommendations for when their favorite artists or similar artists have a show near them. Dice is a great partner for artists as well. If an artist wants to play bigger venues, increase revenue, or reach a wider audience, artists always benefit from Dice's data-driven planning. Want to learn more about how Dice can partner with you? Visit dice.fm partners. That's D-I-C-E dot F-M slash P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S. Or you can also visit the link in our show notes. It's about that time. We're going to have our next listeners episode of Trapital very soon. That's where we answer your questions about the business of music, media, and culture, and everything that's happening. But this time, we want to do it differently. We want to hear directly from you. And if you go to the website, memo.fm slash Trapital, you can record yourself asking a question, and we'll pick the best questions and answer them on the show. Really excited about this. I love when podcasts do this, and I've always wanted to do it in Trapital, and now we're going to make that happen. We encourage you to do a quick intro in the beginning. Hey, this is so-and-so. I work for so-and-so. Here's my question. But we'll also take anonymous questions, too. We know how tight-knit this industry is, and sometimes the anonymous questions can be the spiciest. So let's bring it. Let's make it fun and send in your questions. I'm really excited about this. So if you have something pressing that you want to have us answer on the podcast, go to memo.fm slash trapital. Look forward to hearing from you. You don't think that Pink could do her acrobatic flying off in the Cirque du Soleil? It should be a Cirque du Soleil Pink collaboration. That's exactly right. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. There are very few things in entertainment that have evolved more than the Las Vegas artist residency. We went from Liberace getting paid $750 to do one week's worth of shows in a hotel to an Adele ticket being priced so high, you're lucky if you can get in the door for $750. The Las Vegas residency is one of the hottest entertainment opportunities there is for an artist, and it's no longer for the artists that are at the tail end of their careers. These are for artists that are established with fans that are willing to spend in a city like Las Vegas that has evolved more and become less and less about the gambling and more and more about everything else surrounding it. In this episode, we talk about the history of how these residencies have evolved, and we talk about the turning point, and that turning point in 2003 of Celine Dion's residency and how that changed everything for the city and all of the factors along the way. I'm joined by Tati Sirsano from Media Research, so come join us as we take a trip to Vegas and enter the world of residencies. All right, today we have a deep dive breakdown on the Las Vegas residency, and we're joined by friend of the pod, Tati Sirsano. Welcome back. Thanks, Dan. Let's go to Vegas. This evolution kind of mirrors a lot of the journey that music has had in its own fight for legitimacy over the years and the perception of music for a while. And the earliest memories of this dates back to the early days of Vegas, going back to the 40s and artists like Liberace 
stamping their flag in here and saying, hey, I'm going to make this work. We have this hotel and getting paid a very cheap fee at the time in order to perform in lobbies. But it wasn't anything like it is today. We're talking about someone that is essentially singing in the lobby of a hotel, no different than how you may check into a hotel nowadays and there may be someone singing in a lobby. That's what the initial Vegas residencies were. Yeah, the history of the city alone is like fascinating. I feel like as I was researching for this, I was tempted to like rewatch that movie Bugsy. <laughs> all into that but I didn't um but yeah it's it was totally different and yet like you said this didn't even exist as a city um for a long time so fascinating stuff I'm glad you brought up Bugsy because the mob ties are real with the history of this city especially with people like Frank Sinatra that I'm sure we'll talk about but yeah that's how so much of this was and you think about the perception of music at the time it was seen as a seedier business. It was seen where record labels in many ways were either fronts for the mob or bankrolled by the mob in some type of way. And there just wasn't as much legitimacy. A lot of these artists, though, were stamping their flag. So we talked about Liberace a bit earlier. Don Rickles was another early artist. And the first deal that uh, Liberace had done, it was for $750 to do a week of shows at the last Frontier Hotel. And that's always been one that has been interesting because Liberace, I'm probably a bit embarrassed to admit this, but I had no idea who Liberace was until California Love with Dr. Dre and Tupac, where Dr. Dre has that line, looking like I robbed Liberace. And then the nerd in me is like, oh, who is he talking about? And then you see this man with more rings than fingers on his fingers. And it's like, okay, noted. Yeah. There's the connection. I love that. I love that Liberace awakening story for you. <laughs> and then through time, I think we did see things evolve a bit. You started to see more of the artists like Elvis come through and really plant his flag there. We mentioned Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack as well. You had Cher, you had Wayne Newton and artists like that. And there's a little bit more money that started to come in here. And Vegas was starting to have a bit more of that attraction where people, very popular musicians at the time, were doing their thing there. And the city was starting to get a little bit more buzz. And this was probably the first time that we saw an uptick in terms of Vegas having more attraction, specifically with artists that were attracting fans and those fans wanting to come see them. I know that there's lots of artists that we're going to talk about that were sort of like icons of Vegas, but like Cher is also a big one to me. Like she, she's done so many residencies and also was just performing there um, very early on and kind of epitomizes a lot of that um, showbiz energy too, with like her costume changes and her stage presence and all of these things. Like, I feel like she is sort of one of these icons of Vegas to me. <laughs> Definitely. Because I feel like she was part of that wave before things started to take a bit of a downturn. And there were several things happening in the 70s with hippie culture and pacifist movements. And a lot of what was seen as the Rat Pack era just wasn't there in the same way. And by the time that rock music really starts to take off, they want to do these shows in arena. Queen and all of the hair metal bands, they don't want to go to Vegas to do their stuff. So by the 80s, things really get looked down upon. And then even Sinatra himself had had this quote where he says, 80s Vegas is now an amusement park. And in my era, Las Vegas was rock solid. And now it's paper mache. So you saw this changing landscape with it all. Over time, I feel like Vegas has gone through so many of those shifts too in reputation and like the demographic shifts and stuff that we're going to talk about. So 
And then even though this conversation is focused on music, it's hard to ignore the other entertainment aspects around this as well, because by the 90s, this is when Vegas goes full on Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus with all of the different variety shows you have. Siegfried and Roy, Penn and Teller, Cirque du Soleil, they all start having their different iterations here. So even though Vegas was starting to go through its challenges, the other thing that I should have mentioned too was that Atlantic City was starting to at least have its rise, especially in the 80s there so that kept a lot of the east coast crowd where it was so all of these things vegas is trying to do what it can and i think the 90s especially was when we started to lean even more into kind of what you described with share the outfits and everything and how do we make this more of that attraction that can be that adult playground and also Cirque du Soleil. i know this wasn't um as much in the 90s and I think just started to become more common a bit later on but the integrations with music there were really uh interesting right like they had the they had the Beatles show they had one with um Elvis's music so it's kind of even bring it back to like the OG some of the OG Vegas performers um and and having music come through in that way I feel like I remember going to a Cirque du Soleil show with my parents when I was like in like 2003 integrations there I feel like we're gonna see even more of now that there's so much of a focus on like reigniting catalog and stuff like that I think there's gonna be more of those types of shows that aren't aren't concerts but are like these Cirque du Soleil residencies that also involve music it's like what old what's old becomes new and people are going to try to find more ways to work these assets that they just spent hundreds of millions of dollars to acquire and there's only so much room for feature films and redid versions of covers and things like that. You got to get creative. And if you're going to get creative, you got to go to the entertainment capital of the world to make that happen. The big shift, though, with Vegas and what we're going to talk about here is 2003. And that's Celine Dion and her A New Day residency. And this is the game changer. This is very much a show about what happens before Celine Dion's residency and then what happens after Celine Dion's residency. She is the queen of the Las Vegas residency. She's the one who sort of, it was sort of a game changer for everything that really reignited interest in this, um, brought more younger audiences, showed what you can do with the Vegas show, I think. Huge fan, we love Celine. <laughs> it's interesting too, because what was unique about her was that Vegas was seen as the place for someone like Wayne Newton, someone that hadn't released any new music at all within 20 years. And then you go there to die, essentially. Like, that's what it was. You go there to really end your career. Celine was in a very unique position, though, because at this point, mid-30s, I want to say she was around like 34, 35, 36 when the ideas around this came. She had taken a hiatus at the beginning of the 2000s. And of course, the 90s were huge. She was one of the most commercially successful artists by far, whether it was big movie soundtracks, big ballads. And in a way, I think a lot of where she was in her career made sense. She had that comeback, the New Day Has Come album, which I think was a year before this residency. It was, either, I think it was in 2002. And a commercially successful album, a commercially successful song. But by the early 2000s, even mid 2000s, pop music was in a very different spot. And it's not that Celine was necessarily like past her prime the same way that a Wayne Newton was, but it was no longer 1997 when you could turn on your radio and you just hear my heart will go on constantly. So it was a very opportune time for someone like her to be doing this. And again, there was no one else and very few women besides Cher, as we mentioned earlier, who were in this type of position. 
So she has this, she was able to have the partnership with Caesars to make this work. And it the first stint of it ends up being this four-year residency. And she's doing five nights a week. Like So this isn't just an artist that is, it very much feels like it's following a tour schedule in a lot of ways with just boom, boom, boom. Like this is, this is her full-time job. And that's one thing that stuck out quite a bit because you look at a lot of the residencies now, an artist like Adele is doing two shows a week, very different than doing five shows a week. And she's just doing that week after week after week. But the model worked in a lot of ways because she's doing it in these intimate venues and the economics of it work out pretty well because at that point, a lot of the audience that was going to a Celine Dion show, this was an audience that gambled a lot more than than they 20 years ago than they do now. So casinos love these residencies because it's all about the drop. They're willing to pay the upfront guarantee to pay for that artist and willing to do that at somewhat of premium because of all of the other commerce things that are happening when they come to town. This isn't just like a standard venue thing where, okay, the artist gets the ticket sales and then the venue gets to keep the, the beverage sales or the food sales or any or concession or anything like that. There's a huge economic opportunity and you have an artist like that that has a proven fan base, a slightly older fan base that has more money now. They're coming to the show. The economics work out well and it worked out really well for Celine as well. I was wondering, did you get any sense of what the perception was around the time that she announced this first residency? Because I would think in the way that she'd really changed the game, were, were people around her either in the music business or outside of it like, what are, why are you doing this? Or were people for it? Did people see the vision? I kind of struggled to get a sense of that from like the research I was doing. I saw a few things. There was one piece, it was from the Daily Beast that had done some writing about it at the time. And there were quotes from people that thought that it was career suicide. Why would she go ahead and do this? Some people thought that it was the laughing stock. Like, why would you choose to do this? Celine had a very timely quote, though, that almost seems a bit, not even want to say early, but very common to what we hear from artists now, where she said, quote, I can actually lead a pretty normal life in Vegas. Yes, I'll be a performer, but I'll also be a wife and a mother. During the day, I'll be with my family, then I will perform and then go home to my bed and my husband. I will cook, clean, and make cookies for my boy. It's perfect, end quote. How wholesome is that? Clear that a lot of artists want a more regular schedule where you know they don't have this grueling touring, uh, both on your mental and your physical health. But I think also maybe something that contributed to the perception that you were talking about is like in 2003, it was still kind of like, it wasn't fully like the sex, drugs, rock and roll era, but it was still like the idea of being an artist was like, you're out every night, you're drinking, you're like partying, da da da. Whereas now I think there's a lot more awareness of like the toll that touring takes on artists. So I think what she, she knew early that like this was the way to go. But I think, um, a lot of artists now would probably read that quote and be like, yeah, you know, that sounds really nice. Right. Yeah. Because some of the artists you will talk about, I think this lines up very well with their life. But I even think back to a couple of years earlier, an artist like Lauren Hill, who had had kids at a very young age. And part of the reason that she took a pretty big career break after the miseducation's massive success is because that she had young kids. She was going through some relationship challenges at the time, and her touring around the world was just a lot for her to be able to manage. And then you think about Celine at the time. Her husband was diagnosed with cancer in the early 2000s. She had taken a hiatus largely because of some of these health challenges and things like that. She just had a young baby as well. So 
these things all made it tough to be able to maintain that lifestyle. So I think so many of the things we hear now about why residencies seem like no brainer, or you just live in LA, you can pop over on the weekends for a couple of hours, you can come back, boom, do what you got to do. I mean, Celine was living that life. It just totally flips the model. It's like, instead of having to tour around the world and bring yourself to the audiences, you just bring the audiences to you. Um, and you can have so much, so much more of a less, so much less of a taxing touring relationship, I guess you can, like Celine said, you can stay, you can see your kids more, you can see your family, you know, you can not have to deal with like the exhaustion and the different time zones of traveling. It's a pretty good, pretty good deal. And then you look at it too. So from the numbers perspective, that first four year stint made 385 million or gross $385 million. She has another stint several years later. That was the one that ran from 2011 to 2019. That was $296 million. So she's still top of the list in terms of the people that have grossed the most. I mean, I do think that eventually that will change, but that's still impressive. That's like the most iconic thing about all of, all of this to me with Celine is like her first Vegas residency ran for four years and became the biggest grossing residency of all time. And then her second ran for eight years and became the second biggest grossing residency of all time. Like she just is racking up the, the records, you know, and obviously like she's an incredible artist in so many ways, incredible voice, incredible stage presence, can appeal to different generations, like all these different things. But what, you know, why her, her residency continues to be like the top grossing ever. Yeah, I think it's a few things. I think part of it is there was definitely a first mover advantage. And this is one of the things that had stuck out with the Daily Beast research that I had read. They talked about how she was doing five nights a week and essentially billing around 400 or grossing, I should say, 400 to $500,000 per show. But in today's landscape, where Celine is not the only one, where there are several other artists who are either A, Celine's contemporaries, or B, people that were at a similar stage to her, but doing it several years later, there's too much supply of available things to do in that way. So I think that's part of it. I mean, she obviously, I think, has these iconic ballads and does carry itself well to even some of that older ethos of how we may see Vegas in that type of way. But on the other hand, I think some of her contemporaries, you look at someone like Mariah Carey, who grew up and kind of rose through the ranks at a similar time. By the time that Celine was doing her first residency, Mariah was still continuing on her career. Emancipation of Mimi was still two years after Celine started her residency. And even though Celine was quote unquote at the top of her game, it's not like we got any new hits since that residency started. Meanwhile, Mariah still had this second and third act of her career to go. So I think that's kind of part of it. But Celine did pave the way for all of these other folks that were either following in her footsteps to come through, whether it's J-Lo, Mariah, as we talked about, Lady Gaga, Prince, Carrie Underwood, Katy Perry, They've all had something similar, and I think that a lot of them do lean back into following the Celine model. Yeah, no, and you have such a good point that Celine kind of hit it at exactly the right time, both in her career and also in the sense that she got like that for that early mover advantage. Yeah, I feel like Britney Spears also was a big one that should get her own mention because she's another one that this I could definitely see the sentiment. Um, where people were like, what do you, why, why do you want to go to Vegas? Even after Celine had kind of opened the doors for this sorts of thing. Um, and her first residency was in 2013. She was 32. 
Um, that was the year she released work. Um, so she was still, you know, having hits. And I think she also kind of expanded the younger crowd um, and, and sort of opened up the door for more younger pop acts that are still kind of at a peak moment in their career, like Katy Perry and like all these other artists you talked about um, to come in and do it. So shout out, Brittany. The other thing that lines up with this is how Vegas itself and the demographics of who's visiting that city changes over time as the generations themselves evolve too, because it used to be a city where the boomers and Gen X would go to gamble. But in more recent years, I think it has become a city where the millennials and even Gen Z go to party, to hang out and to have these experiences. And some of that has intensified further. A lot has been written about the impact of movies like The Hangover and how that was a boom for not just Caesar's Palace, but for Vegas overall, this whole generation seeing this event and wanting to go replicate that themselves. And like the EDM scene there and like the clubbing scene, you started to get these younger people that were coming maybe from LA for the weekend to party or having their bachelor or bachelorette party there is a huge thing. My sister lives in LA um, and she's a millennial and she will go for the weekend to see the Katy Perry residency with her friends. And, you know, you hop on Spirit Airlines, 30 minute flight and you're there. So, you know, I think it, it did start to attract that sort of demographic. And then it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling thing, right? Because you have like these younger pop artists that are starting starting to perform there. And then you have a younger demographic coming to see them. And then you have more artists coming in because they see that younger demographic and it kind of like feeds itself. Um, so it sort of was like this virtuous cycle at the time, I think too. I do think the age shift that we've seen did make a pretty big difference with a lot of this because you have the younger fans that can see these artists in different ways where even though it isn't a residency, I think we've seen other things too where you just saw more artists come through and do shows in Vegas. Like anytime that I've been there and I've been to some nightclub, there's always some big artist that does show up. So I feel like in some ways that can almost be a bit of a feeder or a test ground to see, okay, is this person going to be someone that can generate enough demand? And if they see that, then one of the other casinos may try to have you have a longer residency that's there. So there's this whole ecosystem where even if you may not have a flagship residency, every time I've went, the billboards everywhere are either showing or saying, or the marquees are like, oh, Meek Mill is here. And Meek Mill may not have had a traditional residency, but someone like him or someone like The Dream is testing things out in the same way that we've seen some of the current artists that have residencies now do that. And then I think the other thing too with the older audiences is that because Vegas is an opportunity to see a lot of these established acts that we're talking about who would probably be touring in arenas if they weren't in Vegas. But in Vegas, they're doing these smaller shows at these more intimate venues that may only have a few thousand seats. And because of that, the fans who are now the average age for a lot of them, they're in their 40s or um they have the money and they also are willing to pay more and make an experience and a weekend out of it in order to see this person. So a lot of that same behavior that you and I talked about with past episodes of people traveling for the Renaissance tour, people traveling for the Eras tour, people have been traveling to Vegas and making that a weekend in a lot of the same ways and centering it around these music performances. I brought some data about that because um, at Midia last year, we did this, uh, I think I've talked about it on the pod before, we did this survey of um, bands and town users, and we talked about, you know, why they go to shows. Um, and we, we found that two in five concert goers said that they would fly to see their favorite artists if they could not see them locally. So that's, you know, if you could not see them locally, but still, you know, um, 
if, if an artist is doing a Vegas residency, they probably aren't touring on top of that. So that's a, that's a good number there of people that are just going to be willing to go and see you. And even when we ask people about what, what are your top drivers for buying a ticket to a concert? It was interesting, like how people will just, and I, I, I am part of this too, will just forgo the things like location and cost in favor of like, oh, it's just my, it's my favorite artist. I have to be there, you know? So fandom came out on top, which of course it would, but what was interesting was the huge drop between fandom and things like location and accessibility to me, just kind of underscoring that if people love this artist and they have the means, they're often more than happy to travel somewhere else and like make it, make a weekend out of it. Let's take a quick break for this week's chart metric stat of the episode. In May 2020, a few months before Usher announced his first Las Vegas residency, his average chart metric artist rank was 132nd out of all of the artists in the world. Today, as of Monday, January 29th, 2024, he's the 66th artist on that list as everyone is building up the anticipation for his performance on the Super Bowl 58 halftime show stage. Let's get back to the episode. And I think there's something about the way that a Vegas show can be elevated in the perception that makes people look at it very differently. For instance, I remember in the early 2010s, I forget the exact year, but Britney Spears was touring with Nicki Minaj and she had stopped through Hartford and I was living in the area at the time. And I remember talking to uh, then girlfriend, now wife at the time about it. And she was like, eh, we'll see. And then a couple of days later, the tickets ended up on Groupon, which is a discount reseller that is pushing a lot of these tickets. And tickets being on Groupon probably wasn't too much of a surprise because I know at a moment that was a very common place where they would try to just find ways to push the tickets. But several years later, Britney announces this residency, likely singing many of the same songs that she was going to be singing at that concert with the Groupon tickets. But now I remember Jackie was telling me at the time, she was like, yeah, well, now I kind of want to go to Vegas to see this residency. And it's like, she was just at our doorstep and we weren't interested. And I don't think she's alone though. There's something about that thing where, okay, yes, now this person is creating this experience and you want to go check it out. And I think there are several artists that fall in that bucket where it does put you in a bit of a different light. And it's this sweet spot where it serves as a staple to say, yes, everyone can come and tour, but not everyone can have their own residency that's at X fancy hotel and because of how much more is put into these shows and these spectacles especially in the age of social media it does increase the demand and you are as a fan as an as an attendee sort of expecting this different sort of experience not just because like you said it's like a 4000 cap venue or something like that it's much more intimate but also because of the you know the spectacle of Vegas and the fact that this artist is able to develop a much more intricate uh, stage setup because they're in the same place. They don't have to pack this stuff up every night. Um, and they maybe have more budget to put towards that if they don't need to spend on, you know, travel and hotels and all these things that you normally would with a tour. Like not having to pack up your, your stage every night and transport it someone else. It makes a huge difference in what you're able to achieve on stage. So. I think artists like it for that reason and because they get to have this more intimate experience with their fans and equally fans love that because it's a completely different experience that you're that you're able to get. I remember growing up set pieces and stages like that really only existed in musicals or even play productions and things like that. So whenever you went to those 
events, it was always spectacular to see because there were few places that really did it like this because a concert was more likely to plug and play the set thing. There were always some artists that would try to push the boundaries in some type of way and have unique things that they brought. There's only so much that you can do if you're trying to still be thoughtful about keeping costs down, keeping travel down and everything that's related there. So being able to stay in the same place and have something that's elaborate and taps into all the different themes, you can really create your own world in these places. And that's what's really cool. I do want to talk a little bit more about Vegas and the economics of the city itself, because in the research, one of the things that stuck out was many of the people that, whether they work at the casinos or other promoters, would talk about how Back in the day, 70% of the revenue in Vegas used to come from gaming and the other 30% came from all of the other activities that were happening, whether it was merchandise or restaurants or concerts or things like that. Now it flipped. 30% of it comes from gaming and the rest of it comes from all these other activities. So residencies have been able to benefit from that upward tick and that upward rise as well, which is really fascinating to see. And I think all of the things that you and I have talked about in past episodes, the rise of social media, the streaming era, and how tickets and the live performances used to sell CDs. Now it's the streaming that ends up selling the concerts. It increases the demand for that further. All of these things lined up for this city to be the playground that it is to have these elaborate set pieces. No, I was also reading about how um, when the city was so much more reliant on gambling, these residencies were a loss leader because you just needed to get more people in, more people in the door to then spend money on on gambling. So they weren't really focused on making a lot of money out of these performances. But now, of course, it's completely different. I mean, I know that um, the hotels are paying these artists millions of dollars a night and it's it's massive but um they're also selling pretty expensive tickets and and looking at some of the grosses do highlight a lot of this we go back to the celine shows that she was doing it was definitely the case where her shows weren't seen as the money maker obviously they attracted a ton of attention and it was probably underestimated how much money that they were helping to just build long term but she was maybe bringing in a few hundred thousand dollars a night. I think that steadily increased through the success of these tours. But you now look at a show like Adele's uh, Weekend in Vegas, and Adele's grossing more than $2 million per show on average, and that's not even counting the secondary market. That's arena that's arena level prices for a show that is only seating several thousand people. So... In less than 20 years, it's completely shifted, and you're absolutely right. It used to be purely a loss leader, and now it still generates the other revenue that it brings in, plus it is quite lucrative on its own. And I think that also like plays into the music tourism element because like if you're gonna spend that much money, I guess, you might be more willing to like plan this whole trip around it and go to Vegas and do this whole thing. Whereas if Adele was playing in your city and it was it was costing the same amount of money for a ticket you might be less likely to do it um like i f- i feel like people people will make this their you know their annual vacation or whatever that you plan in advance and save up for and it's kind of part of that so i think it definitely plays into the music tourism element the other thing too you mentioned this earlier about the rise of EDM and how we've seen a lot of those acts come through that's had a very unique flavor too because some of these acts have just been staples for the nightclubs themselves so there's two things happening there 
you're able to have this existing nightclub that would already have demand anyway, but now you're able to increase the price even more so because of the DJ that's there. And you're just having all of these people come through. But then you also have the rise of these day clubs and these pool parties and Calvin Harris and the amount of money that he gets for his residency at Wet Republic. And that looks very different where he's the DJ behind the booth while everyone's enjoying this massive pool party. But that's major, too. And it's Paul Oakenfeld. He was probably one of the first to lean in with it. Steve Aoki has done it as well. So. EDM definitely had its moment and its own unique flavor of success with the residency wave. Feels like over time, Vegas has just been kind of adding more, um, encroaching onto different hours of your time there, right? Like you have these during the day, you can go to these day parties. Um, there are those earlier shows for the older crowd, but then there's like the Katy Perry show or whoever it is that's a bit later. And then you you pregame there and then you go out to the club and you see Tiesto or whoever. Um, I remember looking at this, reading this interview with Britney's former manager, Larry Rudolph, and he was talking about her Vegas residency and was saying like, nobody's, nobody is like monetizing like the 9 and 10 p.m. crowd in Vegas. Every like the 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 residencies are only catering to the 8 p.m. crowd. Like it's interesting that then it extended back to like the daytime. Like I feel like Vegas is just kind of taking over like uh I mean residencies are taking over um the full spectrum of how you could be spending your time in Vegas, which is interesting. I wonder what's the earliest time that anyone's done a residency because I'm sure that so many people have kind of had that thought of okay, it's 10:30 we're all kind of hungry. What do you want to do? And I get it. You may not be ready to go sit into a full-on theater at that perspective, but that's where I know a lot of the brunch places and a lot of the restaurants have been able to thrive, whether they have sports on the TV. Brunch or you have the, yeah, the, the brunch residency. Yeah, the brunch residency. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> and I think as Vegas has evolved, you've just seen the evolution of the venues as well. A lot of it started with these smaller, intimate, few thousand cap rooms. Now we're seeing many more arenas that are being built for multiple, for a multitude of different purposes. In 2016, we saw the T-Mobile arena and you've had a various different, you had various different events there, whether it's boxing matches or concerts as well. In 2020, you had this massive football stadium built for the Las Vegas Raiders. I don't remember specifically if there was a concert that's taken place there in that way. I mean, Usher is having a concert there with performing at the Super Bowl in 2024. But I think the biggest one of all of them is probably the Sphere and how that has been a whole different model in itself. And while that's one where I think it's clearly innovative, we're seeing a venue that was built specifically for proprietary content and performances that are made for this venue. The costs are quite high, and I think they're still working through the economics of what that may look like. But the revenues are very high, too. We talked about how successful Britney's show was. She did 248 shows, I believe. Granted, this started almost 10 years ago, but the residency that U2 just did with 25 shows at The Sphere grossed more money than Britney's did. And it was a tenth of the number of shows. A lot of that has to do with the amount of people that can fit in the sphere. It's the size of a 
basketball or hockey arena with nearly 20,000 seats. But it also speaks a lot to A, the massive ticket price and the newness of being one of the first to perform in a venue like this. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that develops. Similar to performing at something like the Coliseum or attending as a fan, like the sphere is kind of going for this like the the venue itself is kind of a bucket list item which is smart like i feel that way i'm like i want to go to the sphere just to like see what it is in the same way that like i want to go to red rocks amphitheater for the venue it doesn't matter as the second on the list is who's performing there you know so um i think that that's a really interesting approach um but yeah it is just a fascinating topic because of all the rumors that have been swirling around about like you know they spent so much to build it, it artists are demanding a lot of money to perform there um, are they going to be able to find, I remember there was like a gap in who was, who was going to be performing. And, you know, I think it's very specific, the type of artists that would perform there. And that could be a challenge because you need someone that's big enough to sell out an extended run at a like 17,000 cap venue. But you also need them to be okay with like the visuals are kind of more important than the performers, my understanding in that type of venue. And like, you have to want to do that instead of a national or global tour. Like you, it's, it kind of fits a similar to Vegas, similar to performing um, at the Coliseum. It, it, it caters to a very specific type of artist, which could be um, works when it works, but could be a challenge. Yeah. That made me think of the demographic of the people that have had very successful residencies and from some of the things you've heard from the sphere i feel like there is a mold of artists that has done well with these vegas residencies they're oftentimes solo women pop performers that were either in that gen x or millennial age from ranging from celine dion and mariah carey and jennifer lopez to Artists that are younger than them, like your Christina Aguilera's or Katy Perry's or Britney Spears, but there were less men in that way. I know Usher is someone that is probably a bit unique there. Boys to Men has been there. The Backstreet Boys have been there, but less of the solo male artists I've seen, but also for a rock group like U2 to do the show in the sphere, it was interesting. So it made me think, was there anything about the Vegas residency experience that you may think lended itself to more of the solo female pop star maybe it's partly the intimacy and that you want one person on stage that's going to like banter with you and like you also need to have a massive catalog of hits like you need to be able to play the hits for like two hours um because when people are going to a vegas residency they're not they're not usually there to hear your new album right they're, they're there to like hear the hits for better or for worse um so i think there have also just been a lot of pop stars that have had uh, a massive catalog of like radio hits that they can play. Yeah, I think the reasons you mentioned are right. I think there's also something about the visual spectacle and the bedazzlement of Vegas itself that I think can lend itself more so to more so to the women in pop music. And I think some of the men in pop music, although some of them have, and I think they will get there. I still feel like there may be this a bit of that Liberace, Wayne Newton impression that a lot of them, unfortunately for their loss, just can't quite get over in that in that type of way. Usher is definitely to me like the prototype of like the perfect male Vegas residency performer. Sings, dances, has the personality, has the hits. Um, I guess Bruno Mars you know. did his. 
Bruno Mars. Bruno had Mars his. is another good one. Yeah, Bruno Mars is another good one. I mean, his whole shtick is so Vegas. <laughs> very pastiche, very karaoke kind of vibes. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, because that's the other thing is I think another part, another element to it is that the artists that tend to do the best with these residencies have this certain vibe that just fits with the vibe that is Vegas, which is a very particular energy. You know what I mean? And that's something that we probably didn't highlight enough with Celine. And I know sometimes this can be part of the criticism that Celine Dion has heard over her career, but a bit of those schmaltzy, schlocky ballads, that stuff gets eaten up so much in Vegas. Totally. And down to like just the costumes and the, I don't know, the, all of those sorts of elements. I feel like it's, it's more of a does your music fit the Vegas vibe than it is a gender thing or a genre thing. It's like, do you have that Vegas je ne sais quoi to you? <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> you know, are there artists that haven't done one yet that do have that je ne sais quoi to them? So top of my list was Alicia Keys. I thought Alicia would be great. Um, I think it's crazy to me that Madonna hasn't done a residency residency. She's performed in Vegas, of course, but she hasn't done a residency and I could totally see that. I bet the Madonna ego wouldn't allow it. I thought about that too, but maybe one day, I don't know. Harry Styles, I think would be good. Um, that, the ABBA holograms are on my list. Um, Mary J. Blige, um, Pink, except Maybe not because her, the type of like acrobatic she's trying to do, I don't know, would fit in the Coliseum. Well, where is Cirque du Soleil? You don't think that Pink could do her acrobatic flying off in the Cirque du Soleil? It should be a Cirque du Soleil Pink collaboration. That's exactly right. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And th there may have been some teases about this because she was recently on 60 Minutes and she was talking a little bit about this. And I mean, her... Her concerts have pretty much become viral at this point for all of the acrobatics that she does. So the one at the top, this would never happen. But if Kanye West didn't make his career tragic in a lot of ways, I think it would be a amazing spectacle. But I think we probably wouldn't see it, one, just because of a lot of the things that have transpired over the past three to four years. At least no time soon we would see it. But... I remember going to each of his tours and his ability to make these arenas that he's traveling to still have these extravagant and amazing set pieces. It was one of the few concerts I had been to that really did feel like it was a traveling musical in a lot of ways. I thought the Yeezus tour, he did a really good job of this. Even the Glow in the Dark tour back in 2008, I thought he did a good job of this. So I think he could do that. I think even elements of Kendrick Lamar's last tour, um, the Big Steppers tour, because he, he's a theater kid at heart with just how he had each of the things. And I think that mentality lends itself quite well to this type of setting. And then I think there's other people too. I could see someone like Kelly Clarkson doing it as well. Um, she seems to probably be enjoying the- Oh yeah, the, I would have thought she had one already. She's definitely primed for Vegas. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, maybe she's enjoying the daytime talk show host life. Yeah. I understand, <laughs> so who knows, but I think she would be a good one. We should talk about residencies overall because Vegas isn't the only city that's tried to do residencies. Vegas isn't the only city that has hosted residencies. 
And sometimes it works in some cities and sometimes it doesn't. And we've obviously talked about what it is unique about Vegas, but do you think there are other cities that have tried to do them? It just doesn't work for whatever reason, or if there are other cities that should be looking at this model. It's funny because the word residency in my mind is so synonymous with Vegas and with its particular venues, you know, that it almost feels like, like technically, I guess a re- if, if a residency is just an extended run somewhere, I think there's like a lot of cities that could do it or have tried to do it. Either you're going to the city for vac- like, if we're talking about like people coming in, like tourism to, to do it, you're either coming into the city for the city and then you're adding on activities and the residency is one of them, or you're going for the artist and then you also want to be in the city. Like you kind of have to have both of those elements work. Um, so I think New York definitely. Yeah, I think New York could for the same reasons that you mentioned. London is another interesting one because Michael Jackson had a sold out residency at O2 in 2009. Michael passed away though, so the residency didn't happen. And I still think that things like that can happen, especially when you have these large international cities where there is just a lot of arts and entertainment. Tourism is quite high. You can still capture a lot of that. It isn't going to be as concentrated as the way that it is in Las Vegas, of course, but you could still create some of that dynamic. I think there are other cities that have tried or we know will try, but I think it can be just a bit tougher. Atlantic City definitely tried and has had artists that have had smaller stints there but those i feel like i've seen more of the real world contestant turned dj turned residency host and now they're performing at the hard rock hotel in atlantic city and that is a residency in its own right but it's a very different type of thing so you'll see things like that that happen I'm sure another one that they're likely going to push is a residency in Riyadh, just given all of the investment that Saudi Arabia and the kingdom has made through PIF in various ways, whether it's through sports washing or entertainment washing to do that there. And with that demand and with like newer artists, newer generations of artists doing this, I do wonder if that sort of like je ne sais quoi Vegas that we're talking about will become a little bit more amorphous where maybe on any given weekend there's like a a different caliber or genre or type of artist that you're seeing and it's not so much like people that fit into this like schmaltzy showbiz type of vibe it could be like imagine like a Billie eilish residency in however many years like i could see that um but it would it wouldn't be the normal like sort of vibe so um i do wonder with this like over time as we've talked about how the vibe of vegas and the demographic and whatever has shifted so much i wonder if it'll also become a little bit more amorphous in the type of artist that works there. Within the next 10 years, I wouldn't be surprised if Eminem is there. I could see that. That's interesting. <laughs> That's the one I'll leave and I'll close things out with. Just imagine the set of 8 Mile, the Bellagio. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would be so interested to see what uh, Eminem residency would look like. Tati, anything else before we close this out? Like, as we've talked about in other episodes too, I think that the demand for live is not going away anytime soon. I think that in this super ubiquitous content world, people want these real life experiences with music um, more than ever. So I think that, you know, bodes well for Vegas. So let's see. Well, thanks again. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. 
rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, rate the podcast on Spotify, rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.